right, we are back. And uh, before we completely leave the topic of the last segment, we refer you to the uh, Paul Krugman op-ed piece in the New York Times from March 9th of this year, in which the Nobel Prize winner asked, what do world's economic crashes have in common? Lack of regulation. In it, he talks about irrational exuberance and influxes of money and basically points out that, you know, when you don't have enough regulation, things just go to hell. I'm not sure that exactly summarizes why it is they gave him the Nobel Prize, but but he has uh, pointed that out eloquently on many occasions. And, of course, the big news story of this week was the passing of the uh, the bill through the House on uh, reforming America's health care. Interestingly, the This Modern World comic strip uh, seemed to have... Uh, identified one of the dynamics in play in that controversy. Quoting a New York Times article from last August, it said, several hospital lobbyists involved in the White House deals said it was understood as a condition of their support that the final legislation would not include a government-run health plan. Quote, we have an agreement with the White House that I'm very confident will be seen all the way through conference, one of the industry lobbyists told a Capitol Hill newsletter. But uh, Paul Krugman called the vote a triumph of reason over scare tactics. Asked Krugman, think about what it means to condemn health care reform by comparing it to the Civil Rights Act. Who in modern America would say that LBJ did the wrong thing by pushing for racial equality? Actually, we know who. The people at the Tea Party protest who hurled racial epithets at Democratic members of Congress on the eve of the vote. That vote, by the way, went forward without a single Republican voting yes which was the case back in 1965 when they voted on Medicare. The Republicans said then it would be the end of the Republic as we know it if they voted for that, and somehow we survived. And in a miscellaneous item related to our troubled economic times, it's been revealed that uh, many customers in America are complaining about those gold-buying scams you see on late-night television. Apparently, the Better Business Bureau has received hundreds of complaints about companies that ask customers to mail in their gold and offer to pay what the company decides the gold is worth. The Federal Trade Commission is now reviewing charges of cash for gold scams. I mean, they're going to do something? Wow. But the customers have been complaining that... Uh, but customers have had various complaints, ranging from lowball appraisals to downright theft. One man said he sent in $200 worth of gold and got a check for 15 cents. Others have claimed that mail-in companies melted their gold before waiting to hear if, they, if, the, if their offer prices were accepted. And some say that they asked for their gold back but were told it was lost in the mail. According to Parade Magazine, Democratic Representative Anthony Weiner of New York said, mail-in companies are getting away with what looks like fraud. Way to go, Congressman Weiner. Noted Parade, customers may do better selling their gold in person. Boy, now there's an idea for you. When Consumer Reports shopped identical bits of 18-carat jewelry, mail-in companies offered 11 to 29% of market value. By contrast, jewelers and pawn shops paid up to 70%. Chris, perhaps the most shocking thing about this entire article is the fact that the Better Business Bureau has... Uh, Acknowledged receiving complaints from consumers. I'm going to try and talk to the Better Business Bureau about, uh, about uh, some of this, uh, this sort of stuff and some other things that have come up of late, which we're not going to talk about today. 
We want to talk science topics in this segment, but I got a few miscellaneous items to clear up. Uh, that October 09 issue of Vanity Fair also had a piece about something we had talked about a long time ago. Their January 04 article, The Taking of Time Warner. In May of last year, Time Warner announced that it would spin off AOL, which signaled the final chapter in history's biggest and perhaps most disastrous corporate merger. That excellent Vanity Fair article by Nina Monk uh, outlined what went down, wherein basically uh, Time Warner CEO Jerry Levin got rolled by AOL's Steve Case. When they announced the deal of the century back in January of 2000, what actually resulted was the evaporation of about $200 billion in shareholder value. Magazine notes that you can read that article, The Taking of Time Warner, at vf.com slash archives. And from the bad deal file, how about this one? Marcos Bertone article in the Sacramento Bee, March 21st. I think I'll quote from the column. He didn't deserve to go to jail. He shouldn't be marked for life on the Internet. At worst... James Marchbanks uttered regrettable words. The punishment for the UC Davis graduate teaching assistant was severe. Four days in a jail cell. Reading on. Last December, three students complained to campus officials that Marchbanks had made threatening statements in the drama class he taught when he pulled out an envelope and said, quote, I have a bomb, unquote. May we remind you, This was in a drama class. Said Mr. Batone, UC Davis police could have reacted in numerous ways. Mind you, there was never any mystery for cops about what was in the envelope. It contained course evaluation forms that students commonly fill out on the final day of fall term. That didn't matter. Campus police went nuclear, cuffing March Banks and taking him to jail, where he was held for days on suspicion of threatening with the intent to terrorize and making a false bomb threat. In the days that followed, 13 other students in the class told administrators Marchbanks clearly was using a figure of speech to present the course evaluation forms that might, quote, bomb, unquote, his teaching career. His professors staunchly defended him. And prosecutors ultimately declined to file charges, saying they did not feel they had a case. But he added that throughout it all, university officials have been unapologetic. They justified the response by citing the Virginia Tech massacre in which 32 people were gunned down by a mentally disturbed student. Said Marcos Bertone, comparing March Banks to Sang Hui Cho, even indirectly, is reckless. Sang Hui Cho had a history of menacing behavior on campus. A judge had deemed him to be a danger to himself and others. March Banks has no criminal record. Anyway, it does make you wonder if those three students in the class had a bone to pick or were just trying to get him into trouble. I don't know. This sounds like a wacky story. And here's a surprising finding from researchers in South Korea. Apparently, Kwang Il-Kong and colleagues at Chungnam National University in South Korea gave 30 men and 19 women 360 milliliters of a drink containing 20% alcohol, about the strength of fortified sake. The drinks also contained eight 20 or 25 parts per million of dissolved oxygen, which is known to play a role in alcohol breakdown in the body. Kwan's team found out that it took about five hours for the blood alcohol levels of volunteers to reach zero, but those whose drinks contain either 20 or 25 parts per million of oxygen 
went to zero 23 minutes and 27 minutes faster, respectively, than those who had the lowest oxygen drinks. The researchers suggest that enriching alcoholic drinks with oxygen might allow individuals to become sober faster. Spokesman for the British Medical Association was unimpressed. We wouldn't want a situation where people drank more simply because they would recover quickly. This does remind me of uh, reading Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff many years back when he described how the test pilots out at Edward Air Force Base would go out, uh, drink heavily, and then get into the oxygen (laughs) when they had to fly their jets the next morning to try and sober up quicker. I guess it works. Anyway, if we ever get Chuck Yeager on this program, we're going to ask him about that. And yes, General Yeager has always been on our short list of desired guests, and you never know. All right, it's time to put my biology degree to work for you, dear listeners, and go over uh, a series of articles which have appeared in New Scientist, uh, which we think is probably the world's best science magazine over the past year, talking about life on Earth and a few other places. In fact, I'm astonished to note, looking down at these articles, that they came on consecutive uh, issues, three consecutive issues, with fantastically uh, interesting articles. At least I think they are. See, let's, see if I, let's see if I can convey to you how fascinating these pieces are. First, January 23rd issue, New Scientist. Article titled, Another Kind of Evolution. Starts out as follows. Just suppose that Darwin's ideas were only a part of the story of evolution. Suppose that a process he never wrote about and never even imagined has been controlling the evolution of life throughout most of the Earth's history. It may sound preposterous, but this is exactly what microbiologist Carl Woese and physicist Neil Goldfeld at the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana believe. Darwin's explanation of evolution, they argue, even in its sophisticated modern form, applies only to a recent phase of life on Earth. At the root of this idea is overwhelming recent evidence for horizontal gene transfer in which organisms acquire genetic material horizontally from other organisms around them rather than vertically from their parents or ancestors. The donor organisms may not even be the same species. This mechanism is already known to play a huge role in the evolution of microbial genomes, but its consequences have hardly been explored. Now, what's curious about this article is that when we talked about genetically modified organisms some time back, it was found out that a lot of genes that were in one plant were turning up in other plants, which does have some far-reaching consequences. But maybe less than we thought, since it appears to be going on all the time in nature, and would certainly make sense looking back at the earliest uh, organisms on Earth, one-celled organisms, and imagining that uh, a lot of evolution took place because things swapped genes. In fact, the men in this study concluded that uh, the fact that uh, all life on Earth has the same genetic code probably came about because we swapped material sideways, organism to organism. Said one, in some sense, the genetic code is a fossil or perhaps an echo of the origin of life, just as the cosmic microwave background is a sort of echo of the Big Bang. This isn't really a very radical idea. It makes total sense and... um, Sure, it's correct. Note the article, today at least, in multicellular organisms, Darwinian evolution is dominant. But we may still be in for some surprises. And the implications for this are significant in terms of genes uh, that we talked about on this show a couple years back, genes for Roundup resistance that Monsanto's putting in certain crops. If those things escape and get into weeds, there's going to be problems. 
Personally, we suspect that's not a matter of if so much as a matter of when. Second article in this series titled I Virus by Frank Ryan starts as following. When in 2001 the human genome was sequenced for the first time, we were confronted by several surprises. One was the sheer lack of genes. Where we anticipated perhaps 100,000, there were actually as few as 20,000. A bigger surprise came from analysis of the genetic sequences which revealed that these genes make up a mere 1.5% of the genome, which is dwarfed by DNA derived from viruses, which amounts to about 9%. Article notes that on top of that, large chunks of the genome are made up of mysteriously virus-like entities called retrotransposons, pieces of selfish DNA that appear to serve no function other than to make copies of themselves. These account for no less than 34% of our genome. So all in all, the virus-like components of us, the human genome, amounts to almost half of our DNA. This again points to the fact that uh, things coming in horizontally, viruses in this case, uh, might have a very profound role to play in making up organisms and influencing evolution. Said author Frank Ryan, We need to deconstruct the origins of the human genome, a story more fantastic than anything we previously imagined, with viruses playing a bigger part than you might care to believe. We're not going to go into the details of the article, but he explains how various genes that are important to to you and me appear to be viral in origin, but sort of uh, found a place, I guess you might say, in our genome and uh, are a part of us, an important part. Third article in this series from New Scientist titled Survival of the Fittest Theory. Jerry Fodor and Massimo Piatelli Palmarini argue, and this is kind of a good news, bad news joke for the creationists, that uh, much of the vast neo-Darwinian literature out there is distressingly uncritical. The possibility that anything is seriously amiss with Darwin's account of evolution is hardly considered. Well, the classical view is that it's the environment that determines what is uh, the most fit and what determines what's passed on to the next generations, but these researchers think that this underestimates the effects of internal variables. Interesting idea. Suppose you have uh, two traits and they're, they're uh, genetically linked. Well, one may be make you more adaptive, one make you, may make you less adaptive, but it may turn out that the less adaptive one gets a free ride on the one that uh, makes you more fit. So how that gene is evolving is kind of hard to fit into Darwinian, uh, in the Dar- classical Darwinian scheme of things. This just means that Darwin's a little more complicated than we thought. It doesn't mean that the creationists are right and that all life on Earth arose in a single cosmic shazam. All right, and final article. This is actually this is the fourth article in a row they had that was good in New Scientist. This one by Barry DiGregorio asked the question about Mars, saying maybe the red planet isn't such a dead zone after all. The article takes up the question of rock varnish. You've no doubt seen out in the desert rocks that have a certain sheen on them. Well, it's apparently a quasi-mysterious process related to organisms. Apparently that little veneer is laid down uh, over long periods of time by microbes. And oddly enough, the rocks on Mars have the same kind of veneer we see on Earth. And some people are asking the question, well, maybe, maybe there's life right out in front of us and we're not recognizing what we're seeing. Anyway, I sure wouldn't mind hearing from someone from the geology department on this one. Evidently, a geologist thought for years that rock varnish was kind of a, just a natural process of weathering of the rock. But when uh, microscopic images were looked at back in the 70s, they found an intricate layer cake pattern. 
which uh, showed that, you know, life was at work, or at least it was suggestive that life was at work. Apparently, they, they still can't quite nail this down. Article talks about how we need to send a, a science laboratory that'll get to Mars in 2012, which may be able to detect uh, the varnish on the Martian rocks, which certainly looks to be there in the photos. Of course, you have to ask the question, if we can't figure out whether it's definitively caused by life on this planet, how much better are we going to do on Mars? Anyway, I'm quite certain in the next few years, research in all these areas is going to be very fruitful and we're going to understand a lot more than we did uh, about how life works. All right, one final science item to close. Fascinating bit of research that was reported on in the Wall Street Journal shows that stroke patients who've lost their speech can be taught to, to speak again by singing. Turns out if you suffered a stroke that damaged part of the brain's left hemisphere, which allows us to speak, uh, well, there's hope. Researchers at Harvard found that you could rewire stroke victims' brain by, brains by teaching them to sing what they want to say. Because it turns out singing engages the brain's right hemisphere instead of the left. Employing a technique called melodic intonation therapy, the research team trained non-speaking patients to put their words to rhythms and melodies while monitoring their brain activity. In a matter of minutes, one patient who for years had only been able to grunt was able to say in a sing-song voice, I am thirsty. Over several months, the patient learned to convert their sing-song talking back into normal speech. This therapy has the potential to help the estimated 60,000 patients in the U.S. who are left speechless by strokes every year, which is certainly some good news. Oh, and I can't resist this one final science item reported on in the Week magazine. Research done at the University of California, Davis, indicates that dating a sexy partner makes you more appealing to possible mates. Researchers at UCD here asked male and female volunteers to rate the attractiveness and men and women they viewed in photos. Volunteers looked at different photos of the same people, this time showing them with companions. Both men and women found individuals more desirable when they were paired with attractive companions. Evolutionary biologist Jessica Yorzinski told LifeScience.com that when they tracked eye movements, they found the volunteers all spent a significant amount of time looking at the mate's partner. They noted that although the study was aimed at probing the evolutionary factors in mate choice, it also may suggest some dating strategies for singles. Said Yorzinski, perhaps if women doing online dating websites are pictured with attractive boyfriends, that would help them get more responses with their ads. Well, there you go. Let's uh, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.